0: Happy spring break for a lot of you. I guess, you know, again, um, Oasis, there's like there's like 20, no, 19 different high schools represented at Oasis. Half of you, at least half of you, don't have spring break this week. Um, sorry about that. I really am sorry. Well, we're going to dive right in. Um, I think for time's sake, I'm not going to jump straight to our the passage we're going to be diving into tonight and read the whole thing. Um, do grab a note card if you didn't, you can still get up, you can feel free to move around, I won't mind if you stand up and grab one. But there's an outline on that if you want one, um, blanks to fill in, those are always good. So uh, famous prayer, we've been in this series called the famous prayer in which we've been going over what famous prayer? The Lord's Prayer, the, Lord's prayer, the famous prayer. Um, and uh, tonight is sort of the last phrase in the prayer but we're going to do one more week next week. So Dakota is going to be teaching next week and going to wrap it up with um, the phrase that's sort of there and sort of not. Whenever you recite the Lord's Prayer, you guys know, unless the Lord's Prayer is totally unfamiliar to you, you usually end the Lord's Prayer with this phrase, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And um, that's actually not in most of the old ancient manuscripts that they found that like made up the New Testament and Matthew. But some of the older manuscripts that was in there Anyway, so we're wrapping up with that next week, so next week we're done, and then we're having baptism night, and then it's Easter, and then um, we go through April. But so um, tonight it's this, uh, so we've been looking at each phrase, and tonight the final phrase is this, this is the sixth ask, the sixth request. I told you this a couple weeks ago, the the Lord's Prayer is really made up of six requests. Sort of our Father, this is how you're supposed to address God, address Him as Father, and then six requests. But this last one is this, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? We all have heard that before. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. And so this, this phrase is talking about our battles with sin and with evil. I love, 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 I mean, this whole night, um, Eli, just what he shared during worship tonight about the battles we go through, um, singing a song like uh, White Flag, um, we go through just stuff um, internally, externally. Now, I want to say this. I say it's, it's our battles with sin and evil. Um, what is Sin. You all heard that term before, you know what you think of when you think of sin, but what is sin? Um, I say that to say, some of us, if we're honest, we hate that word. Some of you didn't grow up in church, and um, you just don't like that word. We don't use that word, unless we're in a church context, basically, and it sort of maybe makes you feel like, I don't know, it's just, it's a negative word, it's, it's certainly a negative churchy word, and um, I don't, sure I know I sin, but like, come on, we just, everyone makes mistakes, right? What is sin? Um, sin means, you maybe heard this before, it basically just means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. The classic example is so you have a target out there and you're an, you're an archer, you shoot, but you always fall short. It's, it means to miss the mark. You don't hit the bullseye. But sin is sort of this weird, it's almost like that definition, it's like it's defined by what it's not, right? Like, um, like remember when they first invented the, the car? I don't know, Henry Ford, whoever first invented the car. What did they call the car? Um, they didn't have a name for it yet. They called it They called it a horseless carriage, right? There's times where when you don't have a name for something yet, you sort of define it by what it's not. Um, sin is sort of like that. It's sort of like, it's just anything, I'm not just telling you what it is, but it's not hitting the mark. That's what it's not. It's anything that sort of falls short of God's standards, of God's glory, but um, it's really not like, it's not overly complicated, and yet it's very, very serious to God. Obviously, sin's a big deal. Now, here's one other thing, um, James 1:13, Before as we dive into this tonight, this is huge for you to know. This is going to be on the screens. When we're tempted to sin, James 1.13 says, it is not God who's tempting us. And when I, when I read this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, God, lead us not into temptation. God, lead us not into temptation. It almost sounds like it's saying, God, don't tempt me. Um, don't let me be tempted. This is what James through 15 says. When tempted, James writes, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay? God doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted. How? How are we tempted? We're tempted when we are dragged away by this, by our own evil desire and enticed. A more literal translation, the New American Standard Version, uses the word lust there. It says we are um, by our own lust. They're dragged away by our lusts and we're enticed. In the Greek, the word evil isn't actually even there. Um, it's just the word desire. It's epithumia is the Greek word, and it means an over-desire. I've used that Greek word before. It means sort of like a, an overly strong desire, a desire so strong that it becomes a lust. It becomes, all I want is this, and so it becomes, it becomes evil. Um, wanting some things aren't bad, but when we, we put things in the place of God, um, But that's, we're dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's this, James uses this like birthing, you know, metaphor or whatever. But sin gives birth to death. That's a problem, right? I don't think we talk about that even a whole lot. Maybe some of you, again, if you're not very new to uh, to church, you go, that's great, Easter. Like, that's just, that's really nice of Jesus to die for my sin. And I'm grateful and, um, and I don't want my sin, but okay, so what now? Here's the issue. Romans 6.23, this will be on the screen. The, the wages of sin is death. That's the problem. The penalty, the payoff of sin is death. And you go, well, doesn't everybody die? Yes, everybody dies physically. But this is also talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death meaning separation from God. And that's a, that, won't, that won't be great someday. Um, and I don't know what physical death is going to be like either. And that freaks out enough of us as it is. But spiritual death is, is worse. And so this is talking about both. The penalty of sin is death. So um, how are we tempted? Where does temptation come from? It doesn't come from God. We already covered that. Most of the time it comes from us, our over desires, our evil desires. But also look at this. Matthew 4 verse 1 says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? Satan by the devil. Um, So there's another option. Satan can tempt you. Satan tempted Jesus. You go, why was Jesus led by the Spirit? There are times when uh, God sort of almost like tests us or puts us, I suppose, in situations, which is sort of why this phrase in the prayer comes in. And we're saying, God, I don't really want that. But there's times where God wants to build our character. He wants to help us grow or persevere. And so trials just come, right? It's just in this life that we will experience trouble and tribulation and temptation. But so that's where temptation comes from, not from God, from our own desires, or from Satan. So back to the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps a better way of saying this phrase may be this, and this isn't on the screen, but it's a paraphrase Maybe God, deliver us from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. God, deliver us from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. Um, there's two sides to this. I already alluded to this, but um, lead us not into temptation. Sort of us talking about evil that's within us. And then deliver us from evil is sort of saying, God, help me with evil from outside of me. From people who are assaulting me from outside. Um, and then here's one more passage until before we get to our main passage tonight in, in Psalm 73. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Some of you, if you're like, I don't know, seasoned church guy or gal, you know this verse well. This is an amazing verse. I memorized this sometime in high school. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul writes, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Here's what that means. When you're tempted by things, somebody else has experienced that. At some point, your temptations are never just you. Somebody else, and we don't like to talk about our temptations, do we? And so we don't. But our temptations, they're common. And God is faithful. Here's the thing. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, this is a great promise. He will. What? He'll provide a way out. There is always a way out so that you can stand up under it. And I highlight can there because you can. Do we? A lot of times, no. And I don't either. Can we stand up under it? Yes. Do we sometimes go, no, I want this sin right now. We do that a lot, but there's always a way out and we almost always know where that out is and we could take it if we want to. So my goodness, you guys, if we're honest, we all have battles. We have battles within. We have battles from without. We, We face temptation every day, struggles within our minds about how we should act or how we should behave or things we should say or shouldn't say. And there are things we want to do that we know we shouldn't do. And tonight, I want you to see a very, very common situation that a psalmist experienced right from the Bible in Psalm 73. Um, if you have a Bible or if you have an app on your smartphone, pull it out real quick. Turn with me to Psalm 73. I want you guys to see this. I want you guys to see in your own Bibles this text tonight. I'd love for you to follow along. I'm not going to read this whole psalm. Um, again, for brevity's sake, I always go along. The last two weeks, I didn't finish That should be a crime, and thankfully it's not, but here's what, this is the Psalm of Asaph, it says, and this will be on the screens as well. Um, I'm just going to dissect this a little bit, so starting at verse 1, though, he writes this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of of the wicked. Um, skip down now to verse, uh, skip down to verse 11. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. He writes, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Skip down to verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I am always with you. I'm sorry, yet. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a song almost, isn't it? My heart, my flesh, and my heart may fail, but God, you never will. Isn't that a praise song? Love it. So that's Psalm 73. The writer Asaph is saying this. Here's the problem. Here's what he's dealing with. This is such a common situation for most of us in here that are Christians. Um, He's saying, I'm living a very good life. I'm behaving. I'm keeping my act together. um, I'm doing good things, and yet um, all these bad things are happening to me. Everything is going wrong for me. My life is a train wreck. We're not told exactly what that is. Um, First of all, we see, look at verse 14. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. This guy goes, I've been doing everything I'm supposed to do, and my life is a mess, and I don't get it, and God, I've been obeying you, I've been listening to you, and everything is going wrong for me. And then here's the second half of his problem, that's just the first half. The second half is that he's looking around at all the other people around him, and they are doing everything wrong, basically, indulging in sin, indulging in evil, and their lives are just fine. They're the life of the party. Everything is going well for them. Um, They seem to have a great life. Look at this. I skipped over some of these. Verse four, he writes They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Um, Verse seven From their callous hearts come iniquity. They just sin. Like, who cares? I'm not a Christian. I don't even have moral standards. My heart, their hearts are like calloused, and they just go, this is great. Everything is great. And so this is what Asaph is going through. Um, and then verse 2, he says, my feet almost slipped. I'm starting to envy them. My feet almost slipped. I almost lost my foothold. You know, maybe that's not a big deal. The Bible actually makes a pretty big deal out of losing your foothold. You now, if you're a mountain climber, and these days we use ropes and carabiners and stuff, but if you don't have that stuff and you lose your foothold, you're dead, right? You're just, you're dead. And he goes, "I'm almost, my feet have almost slipped." Why verse 3, "I envy the arrogant." I envy them. You guys um, we almost never think about how dangerous envy is. But it is very dangerous. And let me tell you, every marketing out like every piece of any marketing thing out there, commercial or whatever, is targeting envy in you. That's the goal most of the time in America of marketing is to get you to want other things. Um, You know, classically or historically, envy was one of the seven deadly sins. I don't know, maybe Catholics talk more about the seven deadly sins. Um, That's what it was considered. What is envy? This is what envy is. You guys, envy, we're all guilty of this. I know I am. Envy is wanting somebody else's life. It's wishing that somebody else's life was your life. When was the last time you did that? I mean, I maybe did that, I don't know, at some point today, maybe three hours ago. I, it's wanting somebody else's life, thinking that their life is better than yours. And it's horrible because it sucks the joy out of the life that you actually have. We become very selfish, we become very introverted, we become, maybe become narcissistic. We're obsessed, actually, with somebody else's life, but we want it so badly for ourselves, um, we put on a mask, we become skeptical, eventually we become maybe sort of a bitter, jaded person, um, Because everything to us, I mean, it cripples us. And it keeps us from living our life well. We want somebody else's life. Tonight, here's the situation. I'm going to apply this phrase, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, to this specific case, to envying another person's life. Um, This is serious. And um, you look at everyone else out there at your school it's spring break this week, sure, maybe you're homeschooled, but you see other people and you go, their life looks awesome. Everything is going well for them and I'm keeping my act together and my life is a mess. Um, and maybe you think, I'm like really close to, I don't even know if God gives a hoot about me at all. And maybe I'm going to walk from this whole Jesus thing altogether. Temptations outside, evil inside. Here's how we, here's how we deal with this. We pray through this. This is in the Lord's Prayer because Jesus says, as Eli said earlier tonight, we need to pray our struggles back to God. We need to go to God and say, God, this is where I'm at. So four things. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. This gets into your outline. Four things about how to handle temptation and evil. This is what Asaph does in prayer. He admits the worst, number one. And I'll come back to these so you don't have to fill in all the blanks. But he admits the worst. He sees the big picture. He understands God's grace. And he makes God his first love. So first, he admits the worst, and that's, that's verse 13. So that's number one on your outline if you have a note card. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It's ironic. Verse 1 says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And in verse 13, he says, in vain I've been pure in heart. You know what vanity is or to do things in vain? Vain means, um, it means fruitless. It means without success. It's sort of, when you do something and it's in vain, it, it's meaningless, right? Um, here's the key. He basically says, here's my problem. I did all this stuff. I'm finding I was obeying God. I was, I was doing everything right. But at, at the root, I was, trying, I was using God. I was basically saying, God, if I do this, if I obey you, and if I do this and this and this, if I read my Bible, if I pray, um, you like owe me, God, you owe me a pretty good life, and you're going to bless me and make sure my family's fine and safe, and bad stuff is not going to happen to me, but that's not what happened to him. And in this passage, he suddenly realizes um, that's not how God works. But he was using God. He, um, here's what we do. We, we need to realize, um, I want to love God for God's sake. You guys, I've said this earlier in this very series. I want to love God just because he's beautiful in himself, not because of what he gives me, but because he's beautiful in himself. You guys, most of us, if you're honest, you go, I am maybe a Christian. If you are a Christian here tonight, you go, I actually am one because my parents are one, are Christians. And again, that's a good thing that they raised you this way, but you've got to own it at some point. Or you got into it because you go, I think this is just good for me, but at root, it's more selfish than anything else. God, I am using you as a tool to make my life better. And we never, as high school students, get to this level of dissecting our motives. But at root, we like, we're still in control. It's really about us. And Asaph says, it's all in vain. I was doing this so that God would give me a better life. But that's, I guess, not how God works. And so he admits the worst. All of his obedience to God has been meaningless because primarily it was selfish. Man, man. Like, I've been there. That, that is convicting to me. Um, my question to you is, are you willing to admit the same thing? Like, if that's you, will you admit it? And at least go to God and say, God, it's all been in vain. Number two, he sees the big picture. And for this, um, write down verses 16 and 17. The whole thing switches in this chapter at verse 17. Verse 16 says, I tried to understand all of this, and it troubled me deeply until... Verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He suddenly sees the big picture, right? What what is he talking about? He suddenly, he goes to the sanctuary of God to meet with God, which, by the way, was probably talking about the temple in Jerusalem. If I'm understanding this correctly, I don't know the exact timing, but Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. That was most likely where he went. And it's almost like he gets a vision of what God is going to do. At the end, at some point, um, he begins to see the big picture. God is the ultimate and final judge, right? He brings justice. And it's really, really good that God is a just God and that he will bring justice. You guys, we are obsessed with justice in our culture today. Do you realize that? We all want it. We really, really want it for everybody else who's bad out there, and we really, really don't want it for ourselves. Like if we have to be judged, we really want everybody else to be judged for what they're doing wrong. But when it came to us, if we had everything we've ever done recorded on a videotape and we showed it in front of a judge, we'd be frightened, right? Frankly, most of us. Um, We are obsessed with justice. Um, Look at verses 18 through 20. Surely you've placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Um, and look at verse 24 then. Second half of verse 24. Afterwards, you will take me into glory. Some of you really don't like maybe this aspect of God. You go, I just don't believe in a God who would do that. There's people in our world, and maybe people like, that are wicked, um, that are more wicked than I am, and my heart is wicked too. And, and I, would be, I would be in that boat if it wasn't for the saving grace of Jesus. But it is really good that God is a just God, and that he will bring justice. There's people out there that deserve justice, and we want it. We just don't want it for ourselves. Um, you guys, the only way to stop envying is to start to see the big picture, and to start to see even now that we have to keep our sights set toward heaven, set toward what really is going to matter. At some point, all your stuff is going to be gone. At some point, like everything you have just will not matter, and we're obsessed with the stuff of this earth. What's the number one thing that really will matter for eternity? You guys, it's people, and we've got to have a heart for people, poor people, and rich people, and um, I don't know, different race people, different religion people, different orientation people. We got to care about people because everything else is going to be gone. We've got to start to see the big picture, and how do we care for people that don't know the one true God of the Bible? We pray for them. We love them. We treat them with kindness and compassion. Someday they will stand before a righteous judge, and without Jesus, they are in trouble. Um, Let's keep going. I'm almost out of time. Number three, he understands God's grace. Now that he sees the big picture, he finally starts to see God's grace. Um, Verses 21 through 24, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. Um, that's basically a continuation of verse 13. He sort of says, I was doing all this stuff in vain. I was being very selfish. I was obeying God, but it was all for show. Um, but then he says, yet. There's a yet in there. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Um, you guys... God has not let go of you. He has you by the right... It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've given in to temptation. He says, God, I was a brute beast. I was acting cruelly. I was acting selfishly. I was doing things um, very, very quickly. You guys, we're just selfish by default, right? He says, I was a brute beast, and yet, God, you're with me. You have me by the right hand. He sees this vision of God's grace. And you guys, this, this is the definition of what it means to be a Christian, by the way. Um, It's a free gift. He still takes us. He still receives us. He goes, I know everything you did last week or last month or last summer or five years ago. I know what happened to you, and I'm still, I'm right here. I'm always with you. I'm holding you by the right hand. Or if you've never taken that hand, he goes, I'm offering it to you now. That is God's grace, and he takes us back Every time. And he doesn't let go of us. And that's what grace is. And that's why grace matters. And so finally, so how does he get this grace? Um, Point four, he makes God his first love. He makes God his first love. And at first, that sounds maybe very easy to us. So the verses for that are 25 and 26. "Whom Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart. God, you're my portion forever. We need to make God our first love, right? Not just like somewhere in the mix. God, I really, really love baseball. My first love is music. My first love is um, my straight A's, my image, my reputation, my good looks, my girlfriend, my boyfriend. We need to make God our first love. Um, You know, I said last week I've been quoting St. Augustine a lot in this series. And St. Augustine says this, He says, who you really are, I've I've quoted this twice, who you really are is not determined by what you believe or by what you think, or even he says by how you behave. He says, who you really are is seen in what you love. What do you love? If someone saw the truest view of just what, what gets your heart going, that's who you really are. What do you love the most? You know, deep down inside, there's certain things down in there but that seems so easy. Okay, yeah, you just make God your first love. But no, you have to know this. What did it cost God to save you? What did it cost God to save you or to save us? And most people go, I don't know. Like, nothing. It didn't cost God anything. He's God, right? He just, he just loves us. He just loves everybody. And I would go, no. and eh, That's the wrong answer. God does love everyone. But if it didn't cost God anything to save you, then his love really is not that great because love is costly. What love is is putting somebody else's needs above your own. Love sacrifices. And if it didn't cost God anything, then his love really isn't that great for us. He's sort of that sentimental, just a sentimental God. It's not that big a deal because your sin and my sin and my evil violates God's very nature. And so somebody has to pay the price for that. So you don't just flippantly make God your first love. Jesus, God paid a high price to save you. And so the only reason that you and I can say, God is the strength of my heart, that's verse 26, God is the strength of my heart. The only reason we can say that is because Jesus became weak for us, you guys. That Jesus gave up his spot in heaven so that you and I could be brought into it. The only reason we can say, God, you are my portion, is because Jesus lost his portion. Jesus lost his position in heaven so that we could be brought in. Um, We get God's right hand. Verse 23, you hold me by the right hand. We get God's right hand because Jesus lost the Father's hand on the cross. That's the gospel. It's not just God loves you and he died in died for your sins yes but it costs god something and that is hugely significant you guys as we come to easter that's what that's what god's grace is and that's how we make him our first love is we see that he was cast out so that we could be brought in he was made weak so that we could become strong and if it wasn't for that we would just be stuck in our sin you guys the root of the gospel is this thing called the substitutionary atonement he is our substitute that is crucial We had to have someone stand in our place. And so God paid the price to deliver us from evil. And so we respond to that love, you guys, by running to him. Just saying, Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, whom have I in heaven but you? Nobody. Um, Two final things. When temptations come and we've given in to evil, we often think, number one, God is punishing me. And number two, um, maybe God doesn't care about me. And to both of those things, the cross says no. The cross says everything was taken care of at the cross. Is God punishing you? No, God is not punishing you for what you did last week or last month. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Judgment Day happened about 2,000 years ago at the cross. That was your Judgment Day. And that should be freeing to you like none other. And does God care about you? He gave up his son for you. He substituted his own son so that you could have life. So don't think God doesn't care. Um, Those are two final caveats. You guys, we can have the confidence tonight that God cares for us, that he forgives us, and that he won't lead us into temptation and evil. Let's pray real quick. God, um, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the gospel. God, thank you that Jesus became weak so that we could become strong. God, you hold us by your right hand. But that cost God something. Lord, Jesus lost your hand so that we could have it. So God, thank you that you, you do not lead us into temptation. We pray that you wouldn't. We pray that you deliver us from evil. And God, you give us the power. You give us the power to, to, withhold or to withstand all of those things. Temptation and Satan and death. And um, God, we rejoice in all of that. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.